Our scripture today is 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're starting a new section in uh, this letter in 1 Peter. Peter is working his way toward his conclusion. You can see we're almost there. Chapter 5 isn't all that long. And uh, he's beginning in this section, ending off uh, chapter 4 here, to echo some of the themes that were present in the first part of his letter, back in chapter 1. So if you were to go back and read verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1, you would hear kind of the echo. You'd see some of the similarities between what he said there and what he's saying here. Uh, in one seven, chapter 1, verse 7, he talked about a refining fire. And here in chapter 4, verse 12, he talks about fiery trials. In verses 6 through 7 of chapter 1, he wrote about rejoicing in light of the glory that will be revealed at the return of Christ. And you see the same idea here in chapter 4, verse 13. Back in chapter 1, verse 2, at the very beginning of the letter, Peter talked about the work of the Spirit in the life of believers during trials on earth. And here in chapter 4, verse 14, he talks about the presence of the Spirit with suffering believers. So there's many similarities between that passage at the beginning of the letter and, and this passage here near the end of the letter. But there is one key difference. In chapter 1, Peter is talking about various trials. He's talking about the full spectrum of trials that believers face. Trials in the form of broken relationships. Trials in the form of the loneliness that can come for want of relationships. Trials in the form of job loss or financial insecurity. Trials in the form of fading health. Trials in the form of the loss of a loved one through death. So back in chapter 1, various trials. Literally the word is manifold trials. But here in chapter 4, Peter's focus is singular. It's on trials that Christians face simply because they're Christian. Trials that come when you go public with your faith. This passage that we're looking at right now this morning is about suffering insults, it's about suffering marginalization, it's about suffering vilification, it's about suffering, uh, being reviled, or even suffering outright persecution for no other reason than the simple fact that you are a Christian. Peter was writing to people who were facing those kinds of things, or at least just beginning 
to face those kinds of things. We know from the letter, earlier in the letter, that they were being reviled. We know that they were being insulted. We know that they were being spoken ill of for their faith. We know from the letter and also from uh, historical record that they were being shamed. They were facing social exclusion and, and at times they're even being beaten for their faith. And it, it's not hard to realize why Peter felt like he had to write what he wrote here. They must have been, to some degree, surprised. Why, why is this happening? Or maybe, why is God allowing this to happen? And they must, to some degree, have been losing hope. Where is God as we go through all this? Will it, in the end, have all been worth it? The question is, can we even relate? None of us are being beaten for our faith. But do we experience anything close to the reviling, the shaming, the social exclusion that comes when people live with Christ set apart as Lord in the heart in a culture that is opposed to Christianity? Increasingly, we should be able to relate. If you go public with your faith, if you acknowledge that you are a Christian, that you believe Jesus is the only way to God, that you believe that the Bible is true, you will be seen as regressive, simple-minded, extreme, even evil. Imagine, imagine Imagine your commitment to those beliefs being public knowledge in your workplace, in your school, amongst your neighbors. Not just, okay, you've got your truth and I've got mine, that's cool. But wait a minute, you mean Jesus is the only way? That's what you're telling me? You, you're telling me that the Bible is somehow God's word and that it should be obeyed. It's a different story. Now imagine what it's going to be like for your kids and your grandkids. Pastor Andrew Brunson was imprisoned for two years in Turkey. Among other things, he was charged with the crime of Christianization. He was just released this past October, and he spoke this past week at the Southern Baptist Convention to a group of pastors, and he said this, I don't think we're prepared for what is coming. I fear that many of us are complacent and we're unaware, and this means that the people in our churches, especially the next generation, are going to be blindsided by what comes. The statistics should concern us. A recent survey of young adults ages 23 to 30 found that while 69% said they were attending church at age 17, that fell to 58% at age 18 and then 40% at age 19. And once in their 20s, only around one in three said they were attending church regularly. The commitment to Christian faith among Generation Z, which is those born between 1995, I'm sorry, 1999 and 2015, is even more alarming. One in three teenagers, ages 13 through 18, have no religious identity whatsoever. They either claim to be agnostic or atheist or simply a nun, meaning I am not affiliated with 
any, any religion nor any belief at all. More concerning is that the percentage of Gen Z that identifies as atheist is double the rest of the U.S. population. That's the culture our kids are going to be growing up in. That's the culture your kids and your grandkids are going to be raising a family in and working in, voting in, submitting to governing authorities in, because that's what Peter calls us to do, and that's what, the, what Paul calls us to do in Romans, what God calls us to do. If you are living a distinctly Christian life, if you are living with Christ set apart as Lord in your heart, if you are walking in the way of the kingdom, then you will suffer for it to some degree. Now, the knee-jerk response may be, I've got to do everything I can to equip myself to answer all the objections, all the questions, because if I can just be properly equipped, I can go toe-for-toe, argument-for-argument, and reason people, if not into the kingdom, at least out of persecution of me. That's not the point of this letter. Even what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, which is that famous passage that we look to for the idea of apologetics, it's not really what that passage is about. Peter's talking there just as he is throughout the rest of the letter and especially as he is in these few verses we're looking at this morning about simply living in such a way that it's not about the way a person is treating you. It's about the person with whom you are looking for your salvation, Jesus Christ, walking in his way, trusting that he is king, knowing that he will return and allowing, you know, the chips to fall where they may in terms of how you're treated Will you wait for Jesus to come back? What does Peter say to those who are experiencing suffering from being a Christian or to those who soon will be? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. But rather be bold in glorifying God. Rejoice even. And don't waver in your faith because God's in control. These are the things that Peter says in this passage. This is the message that we need to get. I was talking with someone earlier this week and just reflecting on this passage, and I said, you know, I'm not saying that we should look forward to suffering for being Christians. I don't think any of us should go after that. But there is a sense, when you consider not just what Peter wrote here, but what Peter experienced in his own life, there is a sense in which if and when it comes, there's a sense in which we should almost welcome it because there's something that we actually gain from it that wouldn't be gained if we weren't suffering for the name of Christ. So I, I hope that this morning, that what comes out of this, if anything else, is a, a, a willingness to be bold, to take some risks when it comes to things like talking to your neighbor, your coworker, or a friend about Christianity, to going public with your faith, knowing that they will think things about you that, that aren't fair, that aren't true, but knowing that these are the very kinds of relationships, the very kinds of circumstances that God uses as we demonstrate hope in them about him that raises questions that people ask that leads ultimately to the kingdom expanding and growing. And even as it does, you gaining a greater experience of what it means to be known and loved by God. My prayer is that what comes out of this morning is a willingness to be bold and start taking risks. 
So this morning we're going to look at our response to suffering for Christ, God's presence with us when we suffer for him, and then third, God's purpose in our suffering. So our response, God's presence, and God's purpose. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning in this little bit of time that we have here, looking at this passage that we confess, uh, we're tempted to think, well, that isn't for us because we don't have to deal with that. Lord, would you forgive us? Would you help us to stop sitting on the couch and watching and get into the game? Be bold and be willing to risk, what, our reputation? That your name might be glorified and people might be brought face to face with the reality of what it means to know Jesus and be given that great opportunity, even as we suffer insult but don't revile, but instead demonstrate hope and anticipation and rejoice. Lord, may it be that not only would you work through us to bring people to you, but that we would experience more and more for ourselves all the good things that Peter tells us suffering Christians get in this passage. So be with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our response to suffering, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I love it. Peter says, Beloved, my dear family, my dear friends, don't be surprised by this. Why were they surprised? Well, we, we need to do a little bit of work to put ourselves back in their place. What must it have been like for those very first Christians who lived very soon after Jesus Christ rose and ascended into heaven? What must it have been like for them to experience persecution? Isn't Jesus reigning now? Isn't he king? Wasn't his resurrection the victory over sin and death? Aren't our marching orders to make disciples of all nations? Doesn't Jesus want the, the, the gospel to go forth to the ends of the earth? Why are we facing this resistance? Why is God allowing this resistance? We have a hard time putting ourselves in that place, but, but put yourself in their place for a moment. Surely those were some of the things that they were thinking and wrestling with. What was the risk that Peter detected? Well, that they would lose heart. They'd lose hope. That they'd panic and retreat. That they'd go dark. Just keep it private. Why are we surprised? Well, our, I think our reasons are different. We expect things that they didn't expect. We expect to be treated fairly. Right? We expect to be treated fairly in the workplace. Why should I be passed over for a promotion or denied a job simply because of my, my Christian faith? And then when it happens, we're surprised. We, we expect to be treated fairly at school. You know, I've, 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 I've done the work. I've passed the test. I've written a paper that's sound in its logic. <clears throat> Why should I get a failing grade? And we're surprised when it happens. We expect to be treated fairly. We don't expect to be attacked personally. And that's, that's where it really gets hard. It's hard when we're denied the job or the promotion. It's hard when, when you have to go through the, the, the firing squad, as it were, at school. 
and be singled out and mocked in front of an entire class of peers. Those are hard, hard things. I would venture to say it's even harder when someone that you know and love, a close neighbor, a close friend, a family member, insults you because of your faith, turns their back on you because of your faith, says, I can't go there with you. And the very fact that you're willing to go there says, that means I can't even be with you. That's hard. It hurts. We don't expect to be attacked personally. We don't expect to be seen as a morally evil person for believing things that are so self-evidently good. So our reasons are different, but the risk is the same, that we lose heart, that we lose hope, that we panic and retreat, that we go dark and just keep, keep silent, keep it private. So what's Peter saying? Peter's saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Verse 12, don't, don't think that something strange is happening to you. There's nothing strange about this at all. This is normal Christianity. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Where did Paul get that idea? Where did Peter get that idea? They got it right from Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of my name. So don't be surprised, Peter says. Rather, rejoice. Rejoice. Don't just grit your teeth and get through it. Don't, certainly don't have a fatalistic attitude. Rejoice. When this happens, why? Well, rejoice because you share Christ's sufferings. Look again at verse 12, or verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So two things there. Rejoice because you share Christ's sufferings. What does that mean to share Christ's sufferings? Well, it means to suffer like Christ to a degree. We're, we are called to take up our cross and follow him. So in a lot of ways, the path that Jesus walked, a path that was marked by scorn and, and shame, we're, we're called to walk that and suffer like him. And it's also a call to suffer for him, right? To suffer on account of our allegiance to him. Rejoice, Peter says. Now, Peter, Peter had experienced that. We know that from Acts chapter 5 and Acts 5 You've got the apostles, and Peter's numbered among them. We see that in Acts chapter 5. They've been arrested because they've been talking about Jesus. They were jailed. They were beaten. They were brought before the Jewish council, and they were ultimately released. Go back and read Acts chapter 5. And in Acts chapter 5, these guys who had been falsely imprisoned, who had been beaten, what do they do? Acts 5, 41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Rejoicing. They saw, as so many Christians that we read about throughout the world and throughout history, saw that to suffer for the name of Christ is to actually, in a way, share in Christ's suffering in such a way that it ought to lead to our rejoicing. That, that what the world would call shame is actually something that we ought to rejoice in because it is an honor to be so associated with Jesus Christ that you would actually suffer for it. So rejoice because you share Christ's suffering. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter at the end of the verse says rejoice because you'll share in his future glory. 
Paul, back in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, wrote of the fact that we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that same idea of, of, of suffering with Christ and being a co-heir or inheriting is found in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, let me just go back there if you've got it, verses 6 through 7 of chapter 1. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when we looked at that passage a while back, what we saw is what others have looked at and said, you know, Peter's saying here is, in chapter 1, verse 7, he's not saying the... The revelation of Jesus Christ is all about, in verse 7 of chapter 1, the glory of Jesus Christ. He's, he's talking there about, in some way, us sharing in Christ's glory such that there is glory and honor given to us at the revelation of Christ's glory. There's a share in his glory. Peter's saying the same thing there as Paul did in Romans 8. What else does it mean to share in Christ's glory? And then you've got that same idea here in chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. I'm sorry, verse 13. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. We rejoice. We rejoice, chapter 1, because there's the sense in which we are receiving glory from God. We rejoice, chapter 4, because we are seeing the glory of Christ. The point is that it is all future-oriented. It is all about what is coming, not what is now. We don't rejoice simply because we get to share Christ's sufferings, although that is a reason to rejoice. Ultimately, our rejoicing is grounded in what is yet to be, in what is coming. That's the pattern for the Christian life. Suffering now, rejoicing later. Suffering now, glory later. This is why what we need more than the ability to answer objections is a solid foundation for the Christian faith. Better it is to be able to answer questions like, who is God? What does it mean to be created in his image? What has he done through Jesus Christ? What is his great plan? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live for him? And what should I expect in my life? And where are things headed? What will the end look like? What is the great finale to the story? What are the implications for the resurrection of Christ for the end of all things? That's the foundation that we need. That's what will see us through the dark hour. That's what will see your children and your grandchildren through the dark hour. So yes, you know, there are so many great resources to pick up and read on how to answer objections that are raised against Christianity. I don't want to diminish the significance of that. I do want to say, listen, foundationally, of first importance is knowing the Word and what it means to be in relationship with this God who rescues people through Jesus Christ. And not just knowing what God has done, but what God will yet do. 
A big part of the work of the church is providing means for people to gain that kind of a foundation. And so avail yourself of it. The foundational discipleship classes that are happening on Sunday morning for children through adults, everything that happens on Sunday morning before church is foundational. It's laying a foundation. Please don't think anymore that the value of Sunday school is so that we can all just be good Christians. This is a war that we are in. It's a war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against authorities in the heavenly realm. And what we need is a solid foundation. We need to know the weapons that we have at our disposal. We need to know the word, and we need to know where history's headed so that we won't lose hope. So don't be surprised by suffering, but rather rejoice. Secondly, Peter tells us about God's presence with us when we suffer. Verses 14 through 16. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So he says something obvious. Listen, if you're suffering because of sin, you know, forget everything I'm saying. You got bigger issues to deal with. Don't expect God to bless you if you're suffering because of your sin. However, if you are suffering for being a Christian, recognize a couple things. Yes, the world is going to exclude you and shame you. That was happening to them. Yes, you're suffering insults. Don't be surprised. What were they experiencing? Well, they were seeing it was increasingly impossible to not stand out. They just couldn't, as Christians, remain hidden if they were living faithfully for Christ. Especially was true when it came to the dignity of all life and the biblical view of marriage and human sexuality. What Christians adhered to ran counter to that which was the norm in Roman society in that day and age. And, you know, first century redux, right? It's happening now. It is increasingly impossible to not stand out if you are faithful as a Christian, especially in those two areas. Care and concern for the dignity of all human life, be it the unborn, the marginalized, the, the isolated, the overlooked, the infirm, the disabled, the dying, or in the area of marriage and sexuality. If we're going to be faithful to the Bible's teaching, the Bible's ethic in these areas, we will stand out and we will be asked questions like, how can you believe something so evil? The temptation for us is to cave in, is to keep silent, is to go dark. Why? To avoid being beaten, to avoid the shame, to avoid the insults. Peter would tell us, if he were here with us right now, there's a greater shame to avoid. You remember at the end of Luke, when Jesus was, um, uh, when Jesus was, was brought in and Peter denied Jesus three times. Remember what happened at the end of that. Peter was told by Jesus, you're going to do this before the rooster crows. 
At the end of Luke chapter 22, you have that very poignant image of Peter denying Jesus for the third time, the rooster crowing, Jesus looking at Peter, and Peter going out weeping bitterly. Peter would say there's a greater shame to avoid. The shame of the world, the shame that would come from denying Jesus Christ, Peter would say, I've been there. Don't go there. Don't fear the world's insults and shame. Why, Peter says here, you've got something better, something that far outstrips and outweighs any insult and shame that the world could give you. You have the presence and the power of God with you. Even as the insults of the world are being heaped on you, you have God presence and power by his spirit with you through it. That's what this uh, verse means. When you look at chapter 14, uh, chapter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, and here's the phrase, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Peter is most likely referencing Isaiah chapter 11 there. In Isaiah 11, the Messiah is promised that the Spirit of God will rest on him for his mission. And what Peter is saying here is that the same Spirit that rested on the Messiah rests on you. The same Spirit of God that rested on Jesus, empowering him, assuring him of God's presence with him, now rests upon you. God is present with you when you suffer. He is powerfully present with you when you suffer. Paul would say in uh, 2 Corinthians that it is God's grace working powerfully in me in the midst of my weakness that sees me through. How do we experience God's grace? The Spirit of Jesus Christ in us. The blessing that Peter talks about, verse 14 if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. It is a blessing that comes because the Spirit of God rests upon you. You know God's presence with you, and you experience his power through you. And I know that for a few of you, you've had to experience that. You've experienced that kind of marginalization. You've experienced that kind of mockery. You've looked to Jesus Christ, and in it you have experienced what Peter is saying here, you know what? I sense God's presence with me. I, I sense his power in me as I deal with this opposition coming at me. I, I know because I've talked to a few of you, and I also know for most of us this is, oh, please don't let it fall on deaf ears. If you're going to be faithful, it's coming. No shame or insult or of any lasting harm. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God is powerfully present with you. Live for his glory and don't fear the shame. Third, God's purpose in our suffering. Verses 17 through the first part of verse 19. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will... Let's stop there. There is this sense, Peter's already told us this in the first part of the letter, that God is purifying his people. So in verse 12 of chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Again, he's echoing something he said back in chapter 1, that there is this refiner's fire 
that God is refining our faith so that it may be found to be of great value, of, of greater worth than gold and silver. So God's doing this work in us. He is purifying his people. And suffering, and in particular, suffering for the name of Christ, is a means that God uses to do that work in us, to refine our faith. So there's that. But there's also this thing that Peter's telling us about here concerning the household of God. And that's important for us to see as well. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament writers knew that when God's judgment come, it would come, it would become, it would begin with his household. It would begin with his people. And Peter's echoing that here. Now, there's a difference. In the Old Testament, when judgment was anticipated, it was for the purpose of punishing God's people for their faithlessness. That's different in the New Testament. When God's judgment begins to come and starts with God's people, it starts with the church, it doesn't come for the purpose of punishing God's people. It comes for the purpose of purifying his people. There's a purifying work that's happening in each of us individually. Our faith is being tested and refined. But what Peter's doing here at the end of chapter 4 is saying there's something more global going on here. This is about God bringing some of that end time judgment into the present in the form of persecution at the hands of those who are actually opposed to Christianity so that his church might be purified. That the sheep might begin to be separated from the goats. That those who are truly his would be seen as his and those who are not truly his would fall away. That's what's being said here. Yes, there's something individually going on in you, but at the same time, this judgment that we're all going to have to face, Romans 14.10, Paul says, we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. If you're a Christian, your only hope on that day is you're standing in Christ now. But that judgment is coming now. I mean, read Revelation. This is so much what's going on in Revelation. This promise that right now and all throughout the history of the church, persecution has come. There's been an enemy who's been seeking to destroy God's people. That enemy is on God's leash and is achieving God's purpose in part, the purification of the church. And Peter's just picking up on that here and now. Now. How can that possibly be good news? The title of the sermon is Good News for Suffering Christians. This sounds scary. <laughs> Listen, if you're, not, if you're not with Christ, it ought to be scary. But if you are with Christ, then this is good news. Because what God is saying, what Peter is saying, is that God is so committed to your purification, to you being seen as one of his own, for you being able to stand on the last day, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. He's so committed to that that he's bringing that into the present now so that you could be numbered among his own. There's an assurance that we're meant to feel here. When he says in verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, that word scarcely is actually better translated with difficulty, right? So if the righteous are saved with difficulty, suffering's hard. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That ought to compel us to be willing to risk insult and shame and exclusion and even loss of a job 
Because if it's hard for a Christian to see through to the end, it's impossible for those who don't know Jesus. The assurance also comes from the fact that the very, the very thing that, the, that, that our enemy, Satan, and that the world would seek to do, which is overthrow us and destroy our faith, is the very means that God uses to bolster our faith and to strengthen us. God wins no matter what. Good news for suffering Christians. Good news indeed. So Peter says, don't be surprised. Rejoice when suffering comes. Don't be afraid of insults and shame, but be bold because God is powerfully present with you by his spirit. Don't waver in your faith. Be confident that he who began a good work in you is seeing it through to completion as you suffer in his name. Therefore, and here's the conclusion, end of verse 19, entrust your soul to a faithful creator and do good. Just keep pressing on. Just keep walking faithfully. Just keep pressing into those relationships where it feels like, I'm not sure how I'm going to find a window here to share the gospel, but I'm going to risk it all because that person right now won't be saved unless they know Jesus. Just keep being faithful and entrust yourself to God. How? Look to Jesus, right? Chapter 2, verse 23. Peter said in chapter 2, verse 23, when he was reviled, speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23. Uh, no, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Trust God and do right in light of the glory yet to come. Jesus entrusted himself to God who judges justly. What did that mean for Jesus? The just judgment that we deserve went on him. He, he received what he didn't deserve so that we would receive what we don't deserve. <laughs> Mercy and forgiveness. So look to Jesus. He bore the wrath of God so the fire that Peter wrote about in chapter 4 verse 12 would be for us a refining fire and not a consuming one. Look to Jesus. He bore our shame, covering that which is truly shameful, denying Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus. He walked the path before us. He walked the path of shame and insult that we're called to walk, and he rose in glory so that we can know that as we walk that same path, we too will rise in glory. So entrust yourself to God and do good in light of the glory that is yet to come. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, I, I honestly, I don't want suffering. I'd prefer not to have to be mocked and be insulted and and be excluded and be marginalized and to suffer loss because of my allegiance to you. I'd, I'd rather not have that happen and I wouldn't want it for any of my brothers and sisters. And yet your word tells us that if we're going to live faithfully, it's going to come 
And so would you please help us to take to heart the message here in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. That, oh God, that when suffering comes, we cannot just simply not be surprised, but rejoice. Rejoice because it shows that we're on your side, that, that you have called us to be your own, that we are so allied to you, Lord Jesus, that, that we bear some of the suffering that you bore. Lord, would you help us to see that whatever trials and suffering we face now are nothing compared to the glory that is to come. And would you set our eyes upon that day that we might not live for this day. Oh Lord, when the trials come and when we feel weak and, and when the insults which do hurt, hurt, would you help us to remember that your spirit rests upon us, the same spirit that was on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ during the time of his earthly ministry rests upon us. Oh God, would you help us to remember that and appropriate that reality in our lives. And Lord, when, not if, persecution comes, would you help us to remember that there's something deeper going on? That you, oh God, are purifying us and you're purifying your church. That's a good thing. But Lord, would the reality of that judgment that's happening now spur us on to share this good news no matter the cost that others, people that we love, might be saved. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.